0: Years ago, my colleague, Scott Colglazier, who was the minister of my home church in Texas, eloquently described this moment that happens at every single wedding. The bride is just coming down the aisle, and the mother of the bride is seated right here. She stands and turns to look at her daughter coming down the aisle. She sees her face, and then she turns back, and she looks at the face of the groom standing right there. And you can read in her face a million messages. Are you good enough for my daughter? Do you realize how amazing she is? If you do anything to hurt my daughter, the look. Ever since I read Scott's reflection, I have paid attention when I am officiating at a wedding both to the face of the mother of the bride and the face of the mother of the groom. At that pivotal moment, at that magical moment in time, just one look can convey so much. Now you and I live in a world of emails and text messages and so often when we ask a question, we cannot see the face of the person who is about to answer. But if you get a chance to be face to face with someone, then you can read in his or her face what's coming. And so if you go into your boss's office and you ask for a pay increase, you can see on your boss's face what she's going to say even before she puts it into words. And if you get down on one knee and you ask your girlfriend to marry you, before she speaks, you can see on her face the answer. And if your doctor walks in with test results in his hands, and you say, well, doc, how bad is it? You can see something already in his brow or in his lips or in his cheeks before he tells you. Jesus also gave the look. In today's scripture lesson for Mark, we are told that Jesus gazed upon them or looked upon them at three different occasions in this story. Now, Mark is not a man to waste words. He always gets right to the point, but he pauses three times to tell us that Jesus looked. First, He looks at the man who asked the question then he looks around at the entire society and then jesus looks at those closest to him his disciples his followers what do you see in the face of jesus when he gives you that look first jesus looks at the man who has just run up to him falling down on his knees before him and asking him this question the man wants to know what does he need to do to inherit eternal life and jesus first states the obvious reciting some of the ten commandments no murder no theft no adultery no lying honor your mom and dad no fraud and the eager man assures jesus that he has checked all those boxes he's good and then before jesus tells him to go and sell all he has and give to the poor and come and follow him jesus looked at him, and loved him. This is the only time in Mark's entire gospel that he tells us that Jesus loved anyone. I can just see that look. The look on Jesus' face, looking at this eager man. Compassion, tenderness, affection. Not a stern rebuke not forceful requirements but that soft look of love hopeful that this man can come and follow that this man can be healed what do you suppose jesus was thinking when he looked upon that man with love surely he wasn't there just to condemn the rich but to love them to love them into a new way of living What was behind the smile on Jesus' face, his hopeful affection, as he looked at the man down on his knees, seeking answers? Well, the text gives us a clue. It's, It's a bit subtle, but when Jesus rattles off those Ten Commandments, he doesn't list all ten. He only lists the commandments that have to do with the relationships between people, not between the man and God, but the man and people. So Jesus realizes that part of the barrier in this man's life is his relationship to his community. And then Jesus throws in a commandment that's not actually a commandment. Now, surely Jesus knew the Ten Commandments. So why does he throw in this one that says, thou shalt not defraud, one that's not in the Ten Commandments? Surely Jesus, in his look of love upon the man, can see that this man has gained his riches by defrauding his neighbors. He is not rich because he worked hard and got, went to school and got ahead. He is rich because he has exploited others. Scholars tell us that this word used in the text for defraud either means to keep back the wages of someone that you have hired or to refuse to return goods or money deposited with you for safekeeping. Unfair, for sure. The economic reality in the life in the time of Jesus was that folks got rich by one of two means. Either they inherited this money, or they defrauded the poor, using their power unjustly for gain for themselves at the expense of someone else. And so maybe Jesus looks upon this man with love and sees that this is his chance to also become a person of love, treating his family and his friends, his neighbors and his community with that same kind of love. So if this man is out running a Ponzi scheme, he can go back to the widows that he has defrauded and make it right with them. Or if this man is getting rich off of payday loans at horrifically high interest rates, he can go back and make it right with his clients. Or if this man is employing child labor in Bangladesh at 50 cents an hour to to create clothing that he's selling on Rodeo Drive for $200 a garment, he can go back and create fair and just working conditions. He can provide a college education, a scholarship fund for these young people to educate themselves. Maybe Jesus believes that he can cure this man of the sickness of accumulating more and more and more and teach him how to love those who are hungry just for daily bread and a decent wage to support their own families. But sadly, the man refuses to be changed by the love of Jesus. He knows He does not institute profit-sharing. He does not pay a fair wage. He does not donate part of his vast land so that those who are poor can start a community garden. He turns away grieving. It's just too much, too much to give up. He cannot bear life with less. For him, it's about more. And then Jesus turns and looks again, this time gazing at the entire society. This time we're not told that Jesus looks with love, only that he looked. He looks around. He sees the socioeconomics of his day, where there is a very small upper class that owns most of the society's wealth and a huge class trapped in poverty and no middle class at all. And that's when he says it is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of god now a camel is the largest animal they have in this region and in the neighboring region of babylon the largest animal they have is an elephant and so they have a similar saying that says it's like an elephant going through the eye of a needle But I really like Frederick Buechner's contemporary phrasing of this, his paraphrase back from the 1970s where he says, for wealthy North Americans, it is harder to enter the kingdom than for Nelson Rockefeller to get through the night deposit slot of the first national city bank. Now, even that paraphrase is somewhat dated from the 70s. After all, who goes to the bank anymore? So i've been trying to think of an updated version of this how about this it's easier for bill gates to get through the ethernet line to mars than it is for a member of country club christian church to enter the kingdom of god i don't know if it works but when i hear it i picture the face of jesus laughing with a twinkle in his eye Because surely Jesus throws back his head in laughter, chuckling at the hyperbole, because he knows that we humans are going to miss the point. He looks aghast and he shakes his head at his friends who are rich and those who want to be rich, those of us who think that if we have money and material goods that we are successful, that we are winners, that we have arrived, that there is nothing else to reach for because God has richly blessed us because we have stuff. How can they dare think that owning so much stuff buffers them from needing the support of their family and their friends and their church and their God? Do you know that a recent study says that 45% of us gave no money to any charitable cause not to the Boy Scouts, not to the Girl Scouts, not to the Salvation Army, not to our congregations. Nothing. And 41% of us gave less than 2% of our incomes. What look would there be on the face of Jesus as he reviewed that study? I loved the article that Ann Patchett wrote a few, year, a few uh, months, months ago in early January She wrote about her experiment with giving up shopping for one year. For one year, she bought absolutely nothing except for what she needed at the grocery store, and she made a little exception for books, since she is the author of many books and owns a bookstore. But for one year, she bought no sweaters, no purses, no new work dresses, not even for the occasion when she was going to interview Tom Hanks on stage. She bought no Fitbit to make her thinner, no new running shoes, and she describes how difficult it was at first, but how she realized that she was saving so much time, not only from not shopping or looking online for what she might need, but not even thinking about what she needed, and she realized that the trickiest part of this experiment was living with the startling abundance that had become glaringly obvious when she stopped trying to get more after a while she said it became easier to give money away because she was clearer and clearer about how abundant her life was about how little real need she had and so much need her neighbors had my grandson lincoln is three in mid-january i saw him for the first time since christmas I jumped in his mom's car to drive him to school while she went to a doctor's appointment, and as soon as I got in the car, without even taking a breath, he said to me, Did you bring me something today? His mom blushed with embarrassment. But then I realized that every time I had seen him in the past month, every time he had seen any grandmother over the past month, she had given him something new christmas jammies a christmas cookie something for his stocking a new toy and he was ready for the spirit of christmas to go on the whole year through we train our children early that getting goodies equals joy and who would want to give up such a good life finally jesus turns his gaze upon folks like you and me his disciples His followers, the inner circle. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, with God all things are possible. If we could see the look on his face as he looks at us, what do you think we would see on the face of Jesus? Is he hopeful? Is he worried? Is he confident? Is he heartbroken? Does he look upon us with skepticism or with joyful longing? Jesus looks out at his first round draft recruits, Peter and Andrew and Bartholomew and James. He looks at that ragtag group of fishermen and carpenters who have already begun to share their riches with one another. They practice what the world knows is impossible, the rich and the poor at a common table tasting bread and wine as if it was heaven here on earth. I wonder if Jesus' face beamed with joy knowing that heaven didn't have to wait till later, but that by changing the economic reality for real people it could break out in the here and in the now. A recent article in the news reported that one one of the leading investment firms, a firm that manages over six trillion dollars, was sending out a letter to the major corporations around the world saying, it won't be good enough in the future for you to tell us about your profits. You need to show us what you are contributing to the social good of our society our real-life economy can be a place where the kingdom of god takes place now recently i was talking with my friend kathy nichols in our global ministries office for our denomination she had just come back from one of our sister churches in el salvador and she said that while we here in the united states are debating things like the border wall and immigration policy and daca That the church in el salvador is creating economic reasons for its members to stay in el salvador she told me about a young teenage girl who was just about to pack her bags to leave her village and come to the united states without documents risking her life but the church intervened and offered her a micro loan so that she could start up a new business a business that they needed in their community which could save both her life and theirs. Can't you just see the look on the face of Jesus when he says, for mortals, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. When my son was about 15, the youth group went to Nicaragua over spring break. Since my son had been about seven years old, he had been pestering me to go on this trip. But now that he was 15, he thought it would be a good idea for spring break to go to the beach in Florida with his girlfriend. He had no interest now in going to Nicaragua to help the poor. The night before the trip, Connor announced to me that he would not be going. The reason there was no suitcase out was because he wasn't going. Dave was out of town, and I didn't know what to do. I had to go on the trip because I was a chaperone. I couldn't leave him behind, and about midnight, I heard the back door shut. Connor was out in the neighborhood on a walk. I began to worry, what would I do? What if he didn't come home before I was leaving for the airport at 4 a.m.? What if he refused to get on that plane? By some miracle, we did board the plane together. We arrived in Houston only to find out that our flight was delayed and we would be hanging out in the Houston airport for approximately 10 hours. The group of teenagers got extremely bored. You can only go into the sunglass hut so many times to look around. We finally arrived in Nicaragua around midnight and we were all in a bad mood. The next day, we drove out to the countryside where we would work on a farm to help the rural poor learn sustainable farming techniques. For hours, we drove in silence on that bus. The kids looked out the window and they saw families living in huts made of scrap tin and straw and mud. They saw coffee plants and banana trees as far as the eye could see. They saw children playing with sticks in the middle of the street barefoot and women carrying water on their heads long distances. And they noticed that their cell phones were losing connectivity. I wondered why any of us had ever imagined this would be a good idea. When we arrived at the farm, the water pump was broken. We had no ability to shower and the toilets didn't function. The kids sat down on the outdoor patio next to the mango tree where they enjoyed their first of the daily meal of rice and beans. Then about 10 o'clock, the kids all climbed up on the roof of our bus and started playing the guitar and singing and marveling at the stars out there that they had never seen here in Kansas City. There was not a city light for many miles. I went back into my little cubby hole and started to unroll my bedroll for the night. When out of the blue. Connor appeared. He sat down next to me on the sleeping bag, and he said, Mom, this is paradise. I will never forget the look on his face. I don't think I've ever been so shocked in my entire life. We spend our whole lives trying to give our kids what they need. And sometimes what they need the most is to have less.